Welcome to the Leadership Akron podcast. For over three decades, Leadership Akron has served to inspire, connect, and develop leaders to strengthen the Akron area. Learn more about opportunities to build Leadership Akron into your pathway at leadershipakron.org. Good morning. I'm not even sure that I need the microphone this morning, but uh, glad, glad all of you found your way to, to Leadership on Main this morning. Just a... Uh, I know that everyone's, we're all trying to navigate this way of greeting each other. So a warm, a warm leadership welcome to all of you, no matter how, uh, how you greeted each other, whether it was a fist bump or uh, I think Dave, uh, Dave Liebich was showing us the new foot, foot bump that people are doing. There's uh, Purell here by the door, so um, hopefully we'll all keep each other healthy over the, the course of the next hour and a half or so. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Patrick Bravo and Crystal Jones, who you're here to listen to. Um, Patrick Bravo is uh, the executive director of the Summit County Land Bank and is on the Akron Public School Board and was recently recognized by Torchbears as a distinguished alum. So glad to have Patrick here to moderate the conversation with, with Crystal Jones, who's an attorney and the, the founder of Project Uchima. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to the two of you and thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Crystal. Um, it's really an honor to sit here this morning with Crystal as she shares her, a little bit about her leadership journey. We met a few weeks ago uh, just to sit down and talk about today's discussion and what she wanted to share. And I have to tell you how truly inspired I was to be able to sit down and le learn a little bit more about her, about her family, about the work that she does in this community. Um, it really was a joy uh, to learn uh, more about you. So. Uh, thank you for opening yourself up to me and to the people who are joining us this morning. Um, and uh, let's set the stage a little bit for our guests. So uh, you were born in Cleveland, raised in Akron. You're a graduate of SUNY in Buffalo and law school in Houston. So tell us a little bit about the journey that brought you here this morning. Thank you, Patrick, and thank you to Leadership Akron, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. This is a different kind of setting. My husband woke up this morning and said, man, if I had to talk for 45 minutes, I don't know what I would do. So, <laughs> so luckily it's me and not you, but yes. Uh, actually, I was born in Cleveland, but don't remember that, and grew up in Akron uh, in the Edgewood Homes, and they called, back then they called it Brick City, but now I know there's a much more politically correct name for it. But yes, uh, grew up in, in, uh, in Akron, and then went to Lane School, which is now down, closed, torn down. Uh, West, which is no longer functioning, so I don't know what that means. And then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, a graduate of Buffalo High School. And so we're, yeah, as I mentioned, I was a cheerleader, and my husband was a basketball player. So we were sort of the quintessential high school sweethearts and have been married 44 years, or maybe 45 years, so yes. So, so basically, um, yeah, an Akron girl for the most part, and, uh, and I guess we'll get into you know, moving to Houston and all that, but yes. And you, you met Mike in biology class. And yes, it was a group of really silly boys in, my, in our biology class, ninth grade, called it junior high back then. And they just laughed and, you know, just were very silly, especially when we had to dissect frogs and stuff like that. And so, um, so anyway, I just thought, what a silly group of boys. <laughs> and so then when we got to Bultel, 
uh, we, he used to sit behind me in English class and uh, he had a different girlfriend and I had a different boyfriend and ultimately in 11th grade we found love I guess and so we ended up going together and then uh, graduating together and all of that so yeah so we, we met uh, first in junior high school and started going together in high school. Well, good and you guys traveled a bit together I mean you were here in Akron you met uh, but you ended up graduating from SUNY New York and then law school in Houston, so tell us a little bit about that. Right, well he got a full ride to SUNY Buffalo and I did not. <laughs> and, so, and, so, um, and so I stayed here, my, my uh, mother worked in the cafeteria at the old hilltop, I don't know if anybody remembers that at the University of Akron, so she worked in the cafeteria so that my sisters and I could go to uh, college free. So I got an associate's degree and then we just couldn't live without each other so we got married um, young and uh, then we went up to, then I moved up to Buffalo with him and the school was so great they paid for an off-campus um, uh, housing and all of that and so then we finished up up there he was really the only senior to graduate off of his basketball team because we've got a bunch of guys from New York and other places and so and I'm a studier so when we got married and I thought you're not studying and so <laughs> and I can study all night especially if I have a nap earlier so you know I sort of whipped him into shape or at least he gives me credit for that and so we graduated on time uh, two years later. Now because I think it's a little important too to the work that you do now in your leadership journey you guys left Buffalo came back to Akron and what did you do then? Yeah, I left Buffalo. My undergrad degree is in education. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so I we moved back to Akron. He was a buyer for BMW and I um, got a job with Akron Public Schools. So I taught um, at East High School and initially started out at the old South High School. And South, that was at a time when South was really phasing out because of declining enrollment in the area and so I ended up at East High School and taught there for a couple of years. Now this is the part of the story I love and I, I have a connection with Houston as well but you ended up in Houston but there really was no reason. <laughs> at least not at first, right? That's true, that's true. We just, you know, there, this was a time when people were moving south. They called the snowbirds, right? So we were just trying to get out of the weather and so it turned out that we had a, um, a group of friends who had already moved to Houston. And so we thought, hey, well, that might be good. And so we packed up the truck and didn't move to Beverly, but we moved to, some of you might get that joke, but anyway, we moved to, uh, we moved to Houston and, um, and basically found a place. He moved down a little earlier because I was still teaching that year and just kind of figured out where we we're going to live and all of that. He did have a cousin that he stayed with for a while. So we moved to Houston and uh, I was up for an adventure and he's up for whatever I'm up for most of the time. So. Well, that's good. That explains 45 years. Yes, right. <laughs> so during our conversation, it really felt like your activism and your leadership, your passion for working in children and families and, and the schools really started at Krauss after you had moved back and, and your children were attending uh, elementary school. Can you tell us a little bit about that and your connection uh, with some other people that we might recognize as leaders in our community now? Okay, and so um, after we moved back from Houston, he, he put me through law school, I put him through law school. Then um, we, I got pregnant and I thought, man, we're gonna, we thought we we're gonna need babysitters, so we moved back home. We moved back to Akron <laughs> because we didn't really have a support system in Houston. And so um, after a couple years here, and you know, I was raising 
uh, we were raising our, our sons. And then uh, after a couple of years, my uh, grandfather passed away. And so my mother and her sister sort of gave the house to Mike and myself, my husband's Mike, and so, which is right across the street from Krause. And so, and I, I had homeschooled my kids for kindergarten, so I was all ready to send them to a private, you know, and the whole bit. And I thought, but there's a school right across the street. I mean, you know, it's right, literally, I could, you know, throw a baseball and hit, and hit it. And so, um, went over and talked to the, to the administrator at the time, and the, uh, the principal and the guidance counselor. And so, we agreed for uh, my son, my oldest son at the time, Jason, to, you know, read at a higher level, to read with third graders and, and uh, math with the third graders. And so, I thought, well, okay, well, we'll, we'll just, you know, I don't want to make an assumption that just because it's a public school that, you know, he won't get a good education. So we ended up over at Krause, and once we got over there, kind of looked around, realized that the PTA had really become inoperable. There was not enough leadership. And so at the time, Vern Sykes, his daughter, uh, Amelia, and Jason, my oldest, were in the same first grade class. And so a group of us just got together and said, you know, this is ridiculous. There needs to be a PTA. And so we started some activism to get the PTA going back then. and. Uh, and get some parental involvement and get parents back into the school building. And and that led to the Krause Caring Community? Yes, it led to the Krause Caring Community because maybe a, a year or two later, uh, the, there was a group that was being formed by a lot of the social service agencies. And so the concept was, let's do wrap around. You know, kids don't exist in a vacuum, families don't exist in a vacuum, they exist in, kids exist in families, families exist in communities. So why don't we try to put together a program that or an initiative that actually serves the whole family and the whole community. So Cross Care Community was born. I wasn't involved in the initial <coughs> piece of this. It was really kind of led by Summit County uh, CSB, Children's Services, and some other <coughs> pretty prominent uh, organizations. And then after the first executive director didn't, didn't work out, they approached me. I was doing some volunteering, and so they asked me if I would take over, and I said no. And then, of course, I did. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, so that so that was really sort of my foray into really becoming very active. And obviously, even though I went to law school and I'm a lawyer, I think at heart I'm an education I'm an educator and an education reformist. And so I really wanted to do what I could. Um, you know, sort of, I told you I have proof philosophy of bloom where you're planted and so here we are in this community and wanted to do what we could for the school and the, and the families in that area. Well and let's connect just a couple of those dots too for a second because I don't want to gloss over the career that you've had and I know I'm spending a lot of time on the schools and, and your family but I think it really sort of led you to where you are uh, today um, but you were an attorney um, and, and you did work at a firm in Houston and uh, very successful uh, maybe talk just a little bit about that, and then all this time you're spending at Krause, kind of lead us to what were you doing while you were uh, doing that volunteer work and that activism? Okay, um, so um, when I graduated from law school, I I was blessed enough to do well. I graduated in the top 10% of my class, um, made law review, and it was interesting because when I got to law to law school, I didn't even know what law review was. I mean, you know, so many of these. Uh, some of me, so many of my classmates had actually come up through a series of lawyers in their family, so that was quite an experience for me. And then I got a clerkship, a federal clerkship with a Fifth Circuit judge out of Austin, Texas, and that was 
very challenging, very fun, because we used to pretty much ghostwrite the opinions. And, you know, of course, we would, we would look through all the briefs and have to come up with the arguments, and then our, our judge would, um, <clears throat> would basically then, of course, edit. And, uh, and the oral arguments were in New Orleans, and that was fun. Yeah, because we used to go to New Orleans for the oral arguments, and we used to have, back then it was $75 a day to spend on the government. And it was, that was really a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and we used, to, we used to room, you know, team up in rooming, so we wouldn't have to pay for the hotel, a lot for the hotel, and we had a really good time. So, so then at Fulbright, so then I had already gotten a, an offer with Fulbright Jaworski, and some of you may know the Jaworski name. It's the, uh, he was the, the special prosecutor for the Watergate hearings and a large law firm, over 300 lawyers uh, at the time, and that's just in their Houston office, and uh, did insurance defense, basically, you know, when the insurance companies, I remember representing U-Haul, you know, makes your heart warm, right? And so, <laughs> and so, um, so anyway, uh, represented U-Haul, uh, a lot of insurance defense companies, and, and um, learned a lot. I, I'm not gonna say I enjoyed it, per se. It was, it was a lot of pressure, you know, so that, Every day you had to make sure you billed. You know, I mean, the end of your day was, did you bill eight hours today? And once I I had uh, Jason, then my work-life balance was a little off for me. And it, in addition to the fact that I didn't get the warm fuzzies, just just representing you know large insurance companies. And so at that time, Mike was finishing up law school, and so we had to make the decision whether we were going to stay in Houston, where again we had no support system. We already had. Uh, Jason, who was about 18 months at the time, and then we decided to come back to Akron. And while you're becoming active at Krauss, and, and you've got this, you're, you're sort of getting the volunteer and the activism bug going, uh, what were you doing then after you moved back? So, raising boys, to rambunctious boys, I um, was, I did court appointments, so I took court appointments out of the Summit County Juvenile Court. Uh, representing moms and children and dads uh, in abuse and neglect cases. And so I did a lot of that. I actually, I don't know if any of you remember Sandra Robinson, who used to be um, the, uh, the juvenile court judge. Well, she had just uh, got elected to the bench. And so she called me up and said, hey, look, I have a bunch of divorce cases. Um, you know, you want to take them? And I go, Oh, divorce, you know. So anyway, of course, I ended up taking them. And so that was interesting as well. And I'm such a diehard, bleeding heart. I think I was more interested, particularly for some of the cases where I felt like, have you guys really tried? Have you done <laughs> you know, have you, you know? And so I remember getting fired one time because the woman, I, you know, I had talked to her husband who wasn't represented at the time, so I got a chance to talk to him on the phone. And he was crying and I was crying and I was trying to, get them to go to counseling and, you know, <laughs> and she didn't appreciate that so she fired me. The only time I ever got fired was then and so, um, so anyway so the, the divorce work was interesting and uh, but it wasn't you know my thing. Yeah. You, you mentioned a minute ago too that you had a lot going on during this time and we have a lot of emerging leaders who are trying to figure out how to manage that work-life balance. Um, when things are most active during that time of your life how did you successfully manage uh, or not, meeting the challenges of raising a family and being active and volunteering and, and your commitments to work? Mm -hmm. it's good, good question, and that was part of the reason why we came back home, you know, because my mother and father lived, I could walk to her, their house, um, I, we could walk to my mother-in-law's house, just from where we, we live now, and my sister lived, you know, we'd walk to her house, actually. So we were in the hub of our community, so we had a lot of support that way. 
And with the community work, you know, my boys went to a lot of community meetings. You know, they knew how to sit and, and you know, draw or color or, or do their homework or whatever. So they were community babies. And so was able to do a lot of um, work with them in tow, actually. And then some of it was just basically um, just while they were in school. And, it, and that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to stick with a flexible schedule, because I had the opportunity, of course, to go with a large law firm or go back into traditional kind of law. But it didn't give me, one, the emotional satisfaction, maybe the intellectual satisfaction, but not the emotional satisfaction. And certainly it didn't provide me with the flexibility that I needed to, um, to raise my boys the way I wanted to. Good. Now, going back for just a moment to our discussion about the cross-caring community uh, and the need for wraparound services, and especially in light of what you see going on in the community today, and you see districts like Akron Public Schools really focusing on family resource centers and wraparound services, have you seen the need for this type of approach change over time? And if so, how has that changed? Well, I guess everybody probably would agree that times seem to be getting worse. I mean, more dire needs seem to be escalating in terms of families and what families need and the emotional support that, that, that kids need. And so I would say that, and again, I'm sort of looking, I'm outside now looking in. Um, so, but I, I, I would say that the need is there now more than ever. Uh, and um, so I'm glad that it's a movement that's taking off. And when, when I was doing the work, I went to a lot of conferences, and there are some places that are doing it a lot. New York, uh, they have this whole communities and schools uh, uh, organization that does a lot of that kind of work. So the recognition, again, which is what the philosophy that we started out with, is that kids don't exist in a vacuum. Neither do families. They exist in community, both the media community and the larger community. Well, we'll get to your work, too, in just a moment on Project Ujima as we continue your leadership journey, I guess. But can you give us an idea with your work today, what are the challenges or issues in our community that keep you up at night on which you hope that your work, uh, in particular now with Project Ujima, will help have an impact on? Well, I think it's probably, again, what keeps a lot of us up at night, you know, how we uh, get along with each other, how we talk with each other, how we work with each other, um, you know, what we think about each other, how we treat each other. Uh, I remember when I first started um, Ujima, we do Kwanzaa, third night of Kwanzaa, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but that's Ujima night, and I remember the speaker, his name is Demario Cooper, but he, he talked about staying in relationship with each other, you know, and that was one of the hardest things because there's really um, no question we have passion, no question we have pain, we just don't have a process. And so often we come together and we have you know, issues that we want to talk about, and we have maybe personal stories we want to share, but how do you do that in the context of a community meeting or a forum or whatever? And so that's kind of what I see as the biggest challenge is that we have a lot of talk, but how do you take it to action? And not only taking it to action, taking it to sustained action. And part of that is in the communities that are most um, disenfranchised, you know, I always say there's no CEO of the community. And so it's, oh, the community will handle that. Well, 
you know, <laughs> you know who's going to who's going to lead that effort? Who's going to pay for folks to be able to spend time doing the work of the community when everybody has to put food on the table and pay the bills? And so, um, so I would say that's probably the biggest challenge is is one um, instituting a process that will take us from talk concern to sustained action. And two, getting the capacity and the, the human capacity to actually get the work done. So fast forwarding a bit uh, to 2010, David James and Celeste Neal approach you with an idea. Who are they and mm -hmm. what were they looking for you to do? Okay, so some of you know my one of my really, really good friends, Susan Vogel saying. And so she and I had been working off and on um, in the community. We were a part of this uh, it was called a community politics workshop by the Kettering Foundation in Dayton. And so they had gone through about eight or nine communities throughout the country and gathered people to do this community politics workshop, which is basically uh, uh, being taught a deliberative process. A deliberative process is when you have an issue, uh, how do you talk about it? How do you hear each other's voices? You talk about the pros, cons, and trade-offs of the various ideas that are presented to address the issue. So we went through an 18-month process with that Herb, Barb Green, a bunch of, uh, about seven or eight of us. So we learned this deliberative process, and we brought it back. We were all gung-ho. We had some school reform forums, and, and, you know, the talk is the easy part, right? And so we had great talk. You know, it's just a matter of, okay, how do you, uh, and then I think then we were really focusing on uh, closing the achievement gap. And so once we, um, so we were kind of known for that work. And uh, that was in the midst of, in addition to raising kids for me and doing legal work as well. And so the Knight Foundation um, was making a pivot, or maybe not, but anyway, their new tag was an informed, engaged community. And so that kind, that happened to dovetail right with the, the, at this, the beginning of our new school buildings, our new CLCs. And so, um, and so I know, and David James, the superintendent, and, and Vivian Celeste Neal, who was the program officer for Knight at the time, the the uh, the atmosphere was such that okay we have these new schools they're not even called schools anymore they're called CLCs community learning centers so what is that about what's the community in that you know how does the community um, fit into that equation and so they were I know David was getting uh, approached by a lot of different groups um, you know why can't we use the buildings what you know what's the policy what's the procedure what's going to happen and so he uh, approached Susan and myself. To, um, and, and Vivian as well, um, to uh, put together, if you will, a, a community engagement initiative or proposal for a community engagement initiative to, so that people could talk about it in kind of a structured kind of way and work together in a structured kind of way on the best use of the new CLC. And so with that in mind, Susan and I wrote a pilot uh, grant in 2010 for about 210,000. And so we really hadn't settled on a particular neighborhood, but we really held some, I don't know if any of that, Matt Leininger, who wrote The Next Form of Democracy. We had a big forum. We did a lot of different things, some pilot forums, just to kind of see, you know, see the lay of the land and get the feel for it. And ultimately, uh, in 2011, we got an implementation grant, and it was, um, we actually ended up deciding on the Bultle community. It was going to be between the North community and the Bultle community, and we were going to do both, but didn't have the capacity. So we ended up working in the Bultle community to um, do this community engagement initiative. And I love that you focused when we were talking before on making sure you, you were very intentional about 
intentional about making sure that you, the work that you were doing was culturally reflective of the community that you were working in. How did you do that? Right, and so um, we, of course, we, we wanted to do that as part of community engagement, is making sure that that you reflect the culture that 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 you're serving. So, for instance, if we had gone to, to the North community, we would have we would have had a totally different fo focus because of the uh, immigrant population there. But with uh, so the book community is largely African American, and so what we wanted to do was make sure that. Uh, what we did was culturally relevant, even what we were known by was culturally relevant, and so we were looking for a good name, and so, um, and so I, um, and actually the suggestion came out of, uh, we ended up uh, training some circle keepers to do these circles that we ultimately do, but anyway, we started out and they, um, we decided that Ujima was going through the principles of Kwanzaa, because Kwanzaa was in, it's called the Nguzu Saba, which is basically the seven principles. And so they're, they're principles that reflect uh, communal living and the culture of Africa. And so, um, so anyway, so going through the seven principles, and I came across Ujima, and I thought, hmm, collective work and responsibility. It's really to build and maintain our community together and make our brothers and sisters' problems our problems and to solve them together. And I thought, huh, I like that name. And so we were working with a marketing person at the time, and so we were having a meeting, and I said, you know, I ran across Ujima, just love it. And she says, well, that's it. And I go, Ujima? And she goes, yeah. I said, well, that sounds kind of weird. She said, well, put project in front of it. And so, <laughs> and so that's what we did. And we took it to our community to see if that was something that, um, that resonated with them and they thought was a good idea, and they did, and so that's it, that ended up to be the name. And, and so by looking at Kwanzaa and the principles of Kwanzaa and then Nguzu Saba, mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit more about that. And how do the principles, I guess, of Kwanzaa and Nguzu Saba reflect or, or impact the work that Project Ujima does? Well, it's it's a it's a basis upon which to all of our values, you know, emanate from those seven principles. I mean, the, the principles go from uh, unity, which is a moja, to kujichakalia, which is uh, self determination, which is ujima, which is collective work and responsibility, ujama, ujama, which is cooperative economics, uh, nia is purpose, and uh, kuumba is creativity, and then the last one is imani, which is faith. And so all of these are really universal principles, right? And so, uh, but basically it was, and it was actually a, an African-American holiday or African-American um, cultural event. Uh, and it was really put together by Milana Karenga, Dr. Milana Karenga back in the 60s. And I, I guess the need was for black people who kind of felt obviously were, were ripped from our culture to kind of find a cultural fitting you know, here in the United States, here in the, on this continent. And so that was really part of the impetus behind it. And so, uh, and so various communities around the United States celebrate Kwanzaa in one way or the other. Uh, it's a six day, a seven day celebration that starts the day after Christmas. And so when we look at what we do, we try to make sure that we are uh, adhering to the principles of Kwanzaa, uh, or the Nguzo Saba is really more the, the technical term and that the work that we do reflects that value system. 
So, and, and that's a great segue. So, tell us about the work that Project Ujima does. Uh, what it, you know, kind of what it, you've told us a little bit about what it's, uh, how it started, what it started doing. Mm -hmm. uh, what has it done over time? How has it changed? And, and what do you do now if, if people are interested in, in working with Project Ujima or, or leveraging the resources that you have? Uh, what do you guys do? Okay. And so, uh, again, we started out uh, we doing these circles because we were trained, and so I love circles, so we, we uh, were trained in circles. The reason why we talk in circles is that circles represent connectivity. It, it represents, you know, no hierarchy. You know, we say there's no head, there's no tail. You know, we're all sitting in a circle. Uh, all voices equal, all voices heard. If you Google circles, they, they're used everywhere. In corporate environments, they're used in prisons, they're used all over, they're used in schools, they're used all, all over. And so we, um, so we started out doing circles in all of the four schools in the Boca community. And the, and the prompt was, you know, what program services and activities would you like to see in or emanate from the CLC in your community? And so, um, so we had those, a ton of circles, you know, and out of that came basically financial literacies, um, knowledge of self, the book club, um, mentoring, tutoring, all of those to-do items came out of it. And so initially, we were about programming. You know, we, we didn't want people to, to come to the circles and talk and then ha not, and not have any follow-up. And so we were doing a lot of programming during our initial stages um, uh, of existence. And then, as with most things, I mean, research shows that, that true volunteer base, especially if they're um, uh, community-based volunteer programs, that volunteers hang out for maybe three years, maybe four years, and then life happens. And so some of the programs that were really the babies of, of some of the volunteers, just, you know, life happened for them. They either got older, their parents got older, they went away, they got a job or whatever. And so, um, so we kind of moved away so much from programming per se. We had a mentoring program that we did with uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters. We had a, a tutoring program that we um, that we partnered with uh, Akron Reads, uh, Project Learn, one of them. And so anyways, but but as people you know dissipated in terms of leadership, we kind of let that go. And so we start saying, well where's the where's the gap? You know, because there's great programming going there. That's not the problem. There's great, you know, people are doing super programs throughout Summit County, throughout Akron, throughout the West Side. So where's the gap? And so as we really look to see where we fit, we realize that our, our gift, our service is process. You know, because again, as we talked at the beginning, you know, there's not a whole lot of process. There's not a lot of structure. So for, for myself, you know, who's old, Duh, you know. <laughs> I have a I have a mentor, Joseph Coleman, and, and he's older than me. And, and when he, when I say I'm old, he goes, Well, Mr. Jo he calls me attorney. Attorney Jones, if you're old, I'm dirt. I said, Okay, well, <laughs> older. And so, but you know, we've been talking about some of the uh, same issues for so long. You know, so 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 very very long, and it is painful. And so um, so we felt like. You know, we could help by training. We've trained over, we've, changed, we've even changed the name from moderators to circle keepers as we've gotten more training. So we've trained over 100 people in how to bring folks together to talk about difficult issues of shared concern, diverse groups of people, and then uh, with respect, build relationships of trust, and then go from talk to action. So we felt like, you know, that's where we fit because that's not happening. And then, you know, along came, you know, the information about the high infant mortality rate. And so now we do circles every Wednesday and Thursday with new and pregnant moms. Um, 
DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, racial equity. I mean, you know, that's really a conversation. So we're moving into that area and helping groups talk about really tough things that, you know, if in some settings it wouldn't go well. But if you set the circle up right with the talking piece and the centerpiece and the ground rules and rounds and all of that, it can be a beautiful process. And it has been my experience that that's what it's been. That's great, thank you. And so how has leadership background and the leadership background community influenced how you look at our community uh, and leadership in general? Um, leadership background is, is, again, one of those um, um, staples, I think, in our community that really is about, from my vantage point, helping to educate us. You know, I mean, you know, basically it's just about we we have a saying when you know better you do better you know and so when you know about the issues and you get to to meet people who uh, you might not normally meet and you get to find out what's going on in our community that's you know that's a necessary thing and so I, I think that uh, leadership Akron is one of the groups in in our community that's doing that kind of work so I've been happy to um, you know, watch Leadership Akron grow, and when we can, partner on things to make sure that um, we're all working toward the same goal, which is to, you know, to better our community. Good. And as we, just a few more questions before we uh, get ready to open it up to our guests for questions. What is the biggest challenge you think we face as a community, and what's the biggest thing you think we have going for us? Oh my gosh, the biggest challenge I think it started out with relationships. You know, I always say uh, relationships are the foundation, the work is the overflow. And so we come together, if we trust each other and if we know each other, then the work will happen. But I think often, for whatever reason, relationships either as a result of working with somebody and then falling out because you don't have a process to reach common ground, or either you don't come together because I've never lived in your neighborhood, you've never lived in mine, and so we just don't know each other. You know, the saying, it's hard to hate up close. So we don't even know each other. And so that's the challenge is relationships, building relationships of trust, because I think most of us have a heart for service. It's just how do you serve? How do you get that done in a way that's impactful and that actually changes lives? And so I would say that's the biggest challenge. And um, what's the last part of that? What's the biggest thing we have going for us? Hearts. You know, we do have hearts. I mean, we have hearts of love. We have hearts of, of service. And so, and um, I think that when we can figure out how to come together more. We do some race dialogues with, with Project Ujima, and those are probably the hardest dialogues that we do. And so, and, and we want more people to come to, to, um, to that setting because it's a safe, sacred setting. We chime in and the whole bit so that, um, so that people can feel safe. But if we can, can dispel some of the myths that we have about each other, some of the fears that we have about each other, and um, and together get the work done, collective work and responsibility, which is really what Ujima is. And when we were together, you, you talked a little bit about traditional leadership, non-traditional leadership, uh, quiet leadership, uh, and the ability to, to create a sustainable sustainability around that in terms of leadership. Did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, dude, thank you for that, Patrick. I had forgotten about that. So so basically, you know, one of the challenges, of course, that kind of 
alluded to at the beginning, there's no CEO of the, of the community. And so, but often, in order for traditional organizations and traditional leadership to do the work that they do, they have to have a connection with non-traditional. You have to have connection with, with the people, with communities, with the, and so, um, but often the capacity for the communities to represent themselves you know, in a uh, sustained kind of way, to be at the table when decisions are made about them and for them rather than with them, you know, is a challenge. And so that would be one of the biggest challenges is that often, even with circles, you know, when, when organizations come to Ujima and say, we want to know how to better serve this, this constituency or, the, or these clients, like okay, well then you need to sit in circle with them and tell your story and hear and let them hear your, um, let, and you hear their story so you can figure out what you have in common. So I would say that is sustained capacity and leadership. And I don't know if that means you know figuring out how to compensate people for the time that it takes to be the expert of the community, to be at the tables, to be at places. Because so many people in our community are doing great work, but they're doing it out of their pocket. You know, they're, they're you know, having after school uh, programs or meeting with youth or have this program or that program. And basically they're just you know, ponying out what they can. Um, and so, and of course that's not a sustainable model. How could we support the work that you do and the work that Project Ujima does? And Project Ujima, by the way, uh, has a new executive director. Yes, so correct. How can, who is she and how can we support her? Okay, so uh, so her name is Lakeish Hayes. And so what we're trying to do is do succession planning. Um, basically, we want to make sure that Susan and I started. Susan was smart. She moved to California. Well, maybe, maybe not smart. But anyway, so Susan retired and she moved to California. I'm going to be here. But we want to make sure that Ujima is not what we call a USTA. Yeah, we used to have Project Ujima. You know, we want to make sure that it sustains itself too. So we started some succession planning. So Lakeish Hayes, I stepped down as the executive director over a year ago. So Lakeish is our new executive director, really beautiful young woman, beautiful, beautiful spirit. And so, um, and then uh, we also have, um, I'm Circle Services Director, I keep giving myself these titles, and so I'm Circle Services Director, and so, and then I'm gonna be stepping down from that, just, just uh, doing consulting. And so, and then we had to move out of, we had to find a place, and so about a, uh, two years ago we found um, some space, because we couldn't keep doing it out of my house and our assistant's house, and so now we're at 1015 South Hawkins uh, Avenue, but then that comes with rent, it's like rent, oh my God. You know, so, we're, <laughs> so we have to pay rent and all those things, and so I always feel like I have another child or something, you know, <laughs> and so, but anyway, so financial support, um, I would say if you hear about uh, dialogues that we're having, consider joining us. The diversity is just so important. I think that for the race dialogues, probably the least represented are white males, uh, and we recognize that it's uncomfortable talking <clears throat> talking about race. Well, I'm doing some book discussion circles on the book White Fragility right now, and those are painful conversations, but they're necessary conversations, and the circle is a safe place to have those conversations. Well, good. Before we open it up, what would you like to, to leave us with uh, as your uh, thoughts to the group before we let them ask some questions? 
Well, I just want to thank everybody. Thank you, Patrick. We had a wonderful time when you came over to have a pre-interview, so that was fun. And thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Gary. Mary and I had lunch about a year or so ago, and uh, and thank you all for coming. I know it wasn't easy. I was at the Barley House last night, and when I got in Barley House, it's close to here, and I said, man, you really have to be determined to get here, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the same with you all. You know, the, I hate to lose the hours, so I know it's an you know. You, some people may be you know, still trying to struggle with leaving an hour. So I thank you all for being here. Thank you for the opportunity to share Project Ujima with you. And we say Ujima is a universal principle. So we don't have membership per se, so you can always be a part of Ujima. It's collective work and responsibility, making our brothers and sisters problems our problems and solving them together. That's universal. That's like treat thy neighbor as thyself, right? And so, um, so again, just thank you so much. Good. Um, I didn't even have to have Tyler wave me off, so oh, I think no I'm going to get bonus points, but uh, <laughs> who has questions for Crystal? I know she's got a lot more she can share. Um, if you saw Ujima like expanding, like what would that look like? Or do you think it's a replicatable model that you could build to other communities, that type of thing, I guess? I do. I do, actually. I, I think that the process is, is sort of the cornerstone, you know, so all around communities are trying to figure out how to talk to each other. I just got a call from, is it Green or Coventry? It's, yeah, Green, Green. I'm looking at Robert because he referred. Uh, anyway, got a call from Green. And so, you know, they're trying to figure out how do we talk about race? How do we talk about diversity and inclusion? You know, and so, so I think uh, communities are struggling all over the country and certainly all over our area with how do we connect with each other? How do we work with each other? And the circle is a magical kind of place, you know, and for we did some circles yesterday with the vocal students, and student leadership. And you know, at first the kids are like, Ugh. you know, but at the end they were really into it. And so yes, I do. I think it is is very, very much a replica model. And we use a lot of um, NIFI National Issues Forum. They publish um, books, issues, like, you know, how do we talk about the environment? How do we talk about Social Security? And they're basically published um, issue guides, but basically could even start out with that. You know, okay, let's just talk about something, and let's talk about the pros of this approach, pros of that approach, pros of this approach, and, and the cons, and then and learn how to talk with each other in a way that's productive. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Crystal, first of all, I want to thank you for the incredible work that you do in this community. Thank you, Lori. I have uh, called you, I, like we've had this phone conversation relationship <laughs> right. for a long time. When I need to understand something, I call Crystal. Uh, uh, my question is, um, uh, I was, uh, I had read in the newspaper, I think, about the seven principles of Kwanzaa, but something about the way you just spoke them I could really hear the universality of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems to me that uh, they're universal from a spiritual and religious point of view. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, if I think of the way uh, uh, capitalism plays out in our community and in the country, uh, as opposed to the way I wish capitalism would play out, mm -hmm. I, I, I think capitalism is great, but it doesn't always play out the way I wish it would. Mm -hmm. Those values uh, seem to not quite fit into the capitalism uh, model that seems to be most uh, 
um, in use mm -hmm. in our community and country. Mm -hmm. And uh, so much of the work that Ujima does needs to, uh, and circle conversations, need to move themselves into the world of work. Mm -hmm. So where do you see that connection? Where do you see uh, those principles and the world of business coming together? Mm -hmm. And how do you see that? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say, Lori, that uh, the principle of Ujama or Ujama, depending on how you pronounce it, is cooperative economics. And so our focus is not so much on competition per se, because we recognize that, particularly for the African American community, that we all struggle together. You know, we're struggling against a system in a way that is not so friendly to us. And so we um, subscribe more to cooperative, like for instance, one of, the, uh, one of the initiatives that we did a few years ago is we had a cash mob. And so we identified uh, quite a few businesses in our community, in the, um, in the West Side community, uh, Copley Road, I want to say Worcester Hawkins area, the Worcester's not, but anyway, the Hawkins area. And, uh, and we just went around and, and um, knocked on the doors or went into the, the, the businesses and said, what uh, are your challenges you know, in, um, in having a business? And for a lot of them, it's undercapitalization. For, for some of them, it was basically having a dream and having a passion, but not having business knowledge, not having business sense, you know, about or experience about how to keep the business up because the statistics show that businesses are undercapitalized often in our community and that they close within two years. And so we went around, did pre-interviews, asked them, you know, what were their biggest challenges, what were their five-year goals, 10-year goals, et cetera, et cetera. And so then, based on that, we have what we call a cash mob. And so we um, so basically, it's kind of like a flash mob. So we were we were uh, challenging the community to shop at these stores and spend a certain amount. And we focused on clothing stores. And even as we were doing that, I recognized there's not a whole lot of variety here that's going to keep people from going to Penny's or Macy's. You know, they were, you know, there were a lot of urban clothes. Uh, one really really dressy sh a shop, uh, some African shops, but not a wide variety. But basically, so that was the question: is, is um, what can we do? So we did this cash mob to let people know, and so then we provided them with a we had um, provided them with a list because we asked them to to uh, to take a list of the new customers they got, and then. Um, so the thought was we would follow up, ask them, did they follow up with their new customers to sort of nurture and cultivate a customer base, and then uh, and they go from there. So you know that that was okay. It happened to be a really windy day, and it, it did turn out as, as well as we would like. As another, so the people who the volunteers who were on this, they were so excited and then so disappointed when it did turn out, and so they kind of you know kind of went away. So, uh, but that was the, basically that's the concept is that. We want to try to support each other, you know, particularly the small businesses that are in our community, because we don't want to have to always drive out to Montrose, you know, or someplace else to, you know, I was a part of the effort years ago where we boycotted and did all kinds of things to get an Acme store, you know, Henry's Acme, and I just literally cried when he just couldn't make it, and so on. But those are the kind of cooperative economics. I mean, not to say that it's anti-capitalism, because it's not. It's just that that's the layer that we have to, to work at in order to support each other and help each other thrive. 
happened there. Um, can you speak to um, the ways in which Ujima's work intersects with the work to combat youth violence? Uh, there was an article in yesterday's Speaking Journal about three young men who were arrested on gun charges uh, they were found to be carrying. Um, and I was struck. I mean, these were three beautiful young men, two of whom were very young, uh, you know, carrying handguns with extended clips, if that's the right term, I'm not a handgun person. But, um, and I, you talk about things that keep you up at night. I'm mm -hmm. so struck by that. And so I'm wondering if Ujima's work is intersecting. Yeah, it is. As a matter of fact, we were hired by the city to draft um, to, or to facilitate the process to draft the, the City of Akron's Youth Violence Prevention Plan. So the first page, we're, 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 we're named on that. And, um, but it's always, you know, I say, it's just, Bill Constantine, I say, you know, we did a report, a, a strategic plan about 20 years ago. So the, the paper is the easy part, right? And so I know I remember doing a, um, we wanted, so as we were drafting these places, we wanted to hear directly from youth. And so we signed up with Judge Teodosio, where we go into the detention center and meet with some of the young men. And um, it was interesting, so interesting. First of all, they didn't want to sit in circles. So they, I don't think they felt safe enough to do that. But we, but we had small groups of, of boys. And one of my questions to them was, what do you think it would take for you not to end up back here? And you can tell I was kind of stumped by that. Hmm. And so then I tried to peel it back. Okay, so what do you like to do? What's your passion? What you know? So it took a long time to kind of get. You could tell people hadn't asked them that, and and they came up with things like music production, landscaping, those kinds of things. And so then my question was, okay, so when you get out of here, what plans do you have for not hanging out with the same group of folks that you were hanging out with? What plans do you have? that will make your life different. And they really didn't have a whole lot of, uh, of, of direction or ideas as to what, if anything, was going to be different in their lives. And so that's one of the, the, the needs, I think, is to find a, a way, and Judge Teodosio will say, you know, basically we have stuff in place, it may not be enough, you know, but it's based on you know, your fasting and your funding. But how do you uh, identify youth while they're still incarcerated? And before they leave, this one young man, he was so smart, but he had missed all of senior year. In the meantime, his girlfriend had had a baby while he was in, in, in uh, the detention center, and he had no basic um, thought about what he's going to do next. And so, um, so yeah, some, some connections, you know, obviously we know all this stuff, you know, it's just a matter of how do we get together and really decide how we're going to go from talk to action. Another thing we did when there were two two people that got um, shot outside Mr. Pantry. This has been a couple of years ago. So community came. Was at Lawton. They came. Everybody was upset. A lot of pain. A lot of you know emotion. And so people told their stories. And so my staff was there. We were writing down the ideas because people really offered their ideas in context of their own stories. And so the next circle, working with Councilman O'Neill, so the next um, circle, or the next meeting, we decided, okay, we need to get people in circles, and then let them know all the ideas that they came up with, help them identify what's already in place to address those ideas, and then let's look at the gaps. 
And it was interesting that Mr. Pantry, the, the woman who works, I guess she's part owner, owner, she was able to go door to door and get the very youth that had been hanging out, you know, breaking the rules and the laws, she brought them to the meeting, which was, and we were like, wow, how did you do that? Because, you know, theoretically they were on opposite sides, right? I mean, and he's done like over 200 police calls or something like that. But anyway, getting the youth to the table in a sustained kind of way, again, doing things with them and not for them or to them is a challenge. And so that's why process is so, so important. So um, you mentioned when you were doing the race circles, there was a lack of uh, the white male voice. Mm -hmm. Can you just give me your perspective on, besides being uncomfortable, why do you think that voice is not at the table and also the importance of that voice being at the table? Okay, so thanks, Robert. Uh, well, it's important, of course, because the whole premise of the circle and, and, the, and the dialogue is for you to hear my story, for me to hear your story, and then together we can discover the things that we have in common rather than the things that divide us. I remember I was doing a circle, a, a series of circles on race, and the, um, there was one participant, and I could tell she didn't really want to be there. She, you know, it was a workplace dialogue, so she probably thought, why, why do I have to be you know, and so anyway, so one of her um, her offerings was, well, I think black people are racist, and so in her experience, she had had experiences where she had not been treated well in her job, and um, so you know, normally you would have pounced on that, right? What do you mean? You know, so but we were doing a talking piece round, and so you know, okay, and so we went around and round and round, and so um, we got to an older African American woman, and so she talked about being in the grocery store and had a granddaughter and an elderly white woman came up and said, oh, what a cute little pickaninny, you know? And so and the woman must have thought it was okay. And so but that really hurt the, the, uh, the, sh the woman who shared. And so we keep going around and then we get to uh, an EMT, a black male who had, was a firefighter. And he shared a story of when he first started at the fire department, you know how you take turns cooking, you know, and all? Well, he said nobody wanted to eat his food. And so after we got around to the whole circle and hearing each other's stories rather than pouncing on each other, you know, so my, we always do a reflection question at the end. My reflection question was, has anything been said or done in the today's circle that uh, has encouraged or inspired you? And so the woman who had been very angry Really, I guess she had an epiphany. So there were hugs and tears, and you know, she shared how that shift in perspective for her was very, very helpful. So I think people are afraid, Robert, for one. I think that we had another woman, this was not a diverse circle, she was the only white woman. And on about the third circle, then she said, You know, I really wasn't going to come back. She said, Because I'm tired of feeling defensive and guilty, you know, and so I think it's part of that is that you know who wants to feel defensiveness and guilt? Those are not pleasant emotions. And so I think it's part of that. I think the other part, quite frankly, is if the system ain't broke for you, then you're doing okay. You know, and so the people who stand to benefit the most in our system the way it is are probably white males. And so they may not feel the sense of need or urgency to be in the circles in addition to whatever uncomfortableness. That's why the book White Fragility, the full name is 
uh, why is it so hard for white people to talk about race is the full title of it. And so, um, and so I would really recommend that book. And, and, and I always tell our circle, I don't get a cut, I don't know Robert D'Angelo, uh, but I just, somebody recommended it to me and it resonated with me in a, in a big way. So I, I think that's why, I think that's why. Well, good, Crystal. We're your circle today. <laughs> so uh, we appreciate you sharing uh, a little bit about yourself with us. Um, is there, how would you, you take us out? This is your circle. Okay, so um, we usually end, and hopefully this is okay with everybody, but we usually end with um, something that we call sleep up. And so we have rituals. We do chime in, and I left my chime in, I think, so we won't be able to chime. But um, so we chime in, we chime out, we do deep breathing, we do a quote, and at the end we do something called sifa, which means praise in Swahili. And so it's a call and response. And so we typically are in a circle. We won't do that for a number of reasons, including coronavirus. But um, <laughs> but. Um, but anyway, and if you could just stand, you know, probably, and it's a call and response, and so I, um, I'll say it, you say it after me, and at the end, we say Ashe. Ashe is another, uh, it's from the Yoruba tribe, but it means amen, right on, that's what's up, you know, whatever, you know, you use to affirm that which has been said. So, uh, may we always remember. May we always remember those that have gone before us. Those that have gone before us. May we be inspired. May we be inspired by their vision and their valor. By their vision and their valor. May their lives continuously remind us. May their lives continuously remind us that service is more important than success. That service is more important than success. That people are more important than possessions. That people are more important than possessions. And that principle is more important than power. And that principle is more important than power. May whatever we do, may whatever we do, be shaped and molded, be shaped and molded by honesty, by honesty, competence, competence, and commitment, and commitment. May our children, may our children, and our children's children, and our children's children, carry forth with pride, carry forth with pride, the nobility of our history, the nobility of our history, and our traditions, and our traditions, to the Creator of all of us. To the creator of all of us. We dedicate our lives. We dedicate our lives. To make this world better. To make this world better. And more beautiful. And more beautiful. Just briefly for a moment, guys. Uh, we do have a couple more announcements just before we take off. Thank you again, Patrick and uh, Crystal, for taking some time out of your day just to share with us your, your insight and your, your knowledge. It's really, it's really, I appreciate your efforts. Um, thank you all for stopping out. I know with the news recently, a lot of people are weary, so I appreciate you all throwing caution to the wind and joining us. <laughs> as well. um, uh, Crystal, would you mind highlighting a little bit about how some contributions to Project Ujima that we're raising this morning can uh, be put to use? Okay, sure, sure. Um, I mentioned the rent, no. <laughs> so, so operating is always, um, you know, uh, a, uh, a need. A lot of the foundations and the grants, you know, they want to be very program specific. And one of our challenges, of course, is how do you show movement? How do you show impact from circles, from, 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 from talk? So, so, um, 
you know, you can, the sheets that are on the table, you can go to our website, there's a donate now page there that you can donate. Um, and you can always volunteer and again, if you hear about, you know, something that we're doing, circles that we're having, we're gonna be working with Robert in the chamber to do some work on looking at DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, what are we doing as a community? And, uh, but if you hear about anything that we're doing, you know, please, you're welcome, and um, and to be supportive and to participate because again, Jima is a universal principle. So thank you. Thank you again to Sam and the entire Rubber Duck staff, and uh, please join us in April for Ken Ball for uh, Chief Boots. Thank you, guys. <laughs>Thank you for joining us for the Leadership Akron podcast. For more information, visit leadershipakron.org slash podcasts.